So good evening, everyone. Is anyone here for the first time tonight? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, I'm going to just jump right in. Our theme is selflessness, and the, the title is You Are Not You. And I've chosen to focus on this uh, in depth for three parts because it's a teaching that uh, is quite subtle and can be easily misunderstood. Uh, but it is a teaching that is not just abstract. The idea of selflessness is not only a philosophical or metaphysical uh, teaching, but and it is a philosophical and metaphysical teaching, but it's also extremely uh, practical and relevant and has a real impact on how we live our life, how we approach meditation practice, and how we would think about the spiritual journey. And this evening, I want to give us the basic orientation to the teaching of selflessness from the Buddhist perspective, and a little bit of the maybe unique Shambhala uh, flair and approach. Uh, but mostly we'll be focusing on some very classical Buddhist understandings of the, the teaching of self and no self. And we'll have a little bit of time for exploration. And I, w- I want to emphasize the way that this um, might have some real meaning for us as human beings and not just a, as a theoretical reflection or um, concept. So, The teaching of selflessness or no self is one of the hallmarks of Shakyamuni Buddha's teachings. So Shakyamuni Buddha um, was a human being who lived sometime around five or six hundred BCE, before the the common era, Uh, was born in northern India, actually today what is technically Nepal and lived and taught in the Indian um, area for about um, about 70 years. Uh, he lived about 70 years. He taught for about 40 years after his enlightenment experience and basically taught from his experience. And one of the real facets of what the Buddha taught was this ra- radical teaching that there is no solid self. And that can lead us to many questions today. But in ancient India, that was a really extremely radical position to take. The Sanskrit term for selflessness or no self is an-atman. Anything in Sanskrit with an A or A-N is usually a negation. So atman is basically means soul or self. An Atman is a, a soul or self. So to say Anatman is to say no soul, no self. And this, for some people, um, is a real challenge or a real hang-up. Um, and there's a lot to explore. But in ancient India, it was almost... Orthodoxy, or really it was orthodoxy, it was 
is absolutely presumed to be the case that a human anthropology, what a human being was, was some combination of matter, our, our physical bodies, and then some animating force called an Atman, a soul. And that it was this soul that transmigrates from lifetime to lifetime, and that that's what makes a human being a human being, and an animal an animal, is they have a soul, they have an Atman. And not only that, in ancient India, um, in the Vedas and in the Upanishads, which are the kind of classical teachings and texts from ancient India and the, the Hindu, what we now call the Hindu tradition, the core teaching was that we, we are a soul, we have a soul, and that's who we really are, that we have something called a, a soul or an Atman, and that's our truest nature or truest being. And that the point of spirituality was to understand that truest self, to try to uncover it and be that truest sense of self. Or in the uh, Vedanta or Upanishadic teachings, there was the sense that what the spiritual path was all about was joining and recognizing the inseparability of our true self and the um, universal self or our true soul and a universal soul. In Sanskrit, this is the identification of Atman and Brahman, that there is a, a self, a soul, that is ultimately inseparable from a, a, an ultimate, greater, all-encompassing and divine true soul called Brahman, or the, the breath, the, the ultimate soul. And I guarantee you that there is at least one or more of you in this room who have that belief. It is a very ubiquitous, common, and maybe primordial or universal teaching that is seen in many spiritual traditions. That there is a true soul or self, and that spirituality means joining or uniting that truest soul with a kind of overarching divine um, all-encompassing soul or source or God. So, many of you hold that belief in this room, and lots of people held that belief in ancient India, not just held the belief casually, but had philosophical arguments why that was the case, and had yogic traditions that were based on this principle of a soul. So, then came along this fellow, the Buddha, and he said, nope, nope, sorry, there is no, no such thing. And he caused quite a stir. And so many people came to him and said, I hear you say there, there is no soul, and they would argue with him. And many of the earliest suttas or sutras, early Buddhist teachings were dialogues where the Buddha would sit under an um, avocado tree or mango tree or Bodhi tree and have dialogues with people about what are we? What, what are we as human beings? That's really the question here. What's, what is going on? What is making up our experience? Who are we really? What aspects of our experience are most true to us, or most original to our nature. So instead of a 
teaching of a true soul or self called an Atman, or a, a true self, the Buddha taught that we as human beings are comprised of a series of interacting parts that come together based on causes and conditions that come together temporarily, interact, and then disperse. And he taught this in terms of what are called the five heaps or five skandhas in Sanskrit, skandhas. And these are basically five um, churning, turning processes that interact together to make a big churning, turning process called you. <laughs> and one of the interesting things about this turning, churning process called you, or called me, is that one of the aspects of what happens when these parts come together is it starts to think, I'm me. And there's the thought, I'm I, I am I. And um, let me name briefly these five skandhas, but we're not going to spend a lot of time on them, but just so you have a sense of the, of the Buddha's basic teaching. So the first of the five is our, basically our bodies, physical matter, that part of what we are, that part of what's coming together for the bit of time that's called you in your lifetime is your body, your, the physical matter that makes up your sense of self. That's the first heap. The second is part of the experience uh, of what makes up you is a, a bunch of feelings. And here, these feelings are very specifically, they mean the feeling that something is pleasurable, painful, or neutral. That's part of what makes up your experience on a very kind of rudimentary, basic level. The third teaching, the third skanda, or heap, is that in addition to our, our body and our feelings, there are also perceptions happening where we are looking out at our world and giving things certain names. The fourth of the five heaps is uh, are the whole range of emotional, mental, psychological experience that we're having. And then the fifth is uh, a series of what are called basically consciousnesses. And this really has to do with seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. It's our perceptual conscious experience. So the Buddha broke down the unified sense of me into these five chunks, five different heaps. And the important part is each one of these five are also not solid, but are turning. So basically the Buddha would break everything down. He would take holes and dissect them into parts. And then if you would get a part, he would dissect that into more parts. And there was a sense that, yes, it seems like we are a solid self. It seems like I'm really here. But if you look carefully and you attend with 
intelligence and attention and investigation, you'll notice, oh, there isn't a solid unified self. There is a process, a changing, flowing, dynamic, moving process of interaction of our bodies, our perceptions, our emotions that come together, interact, and then change. And that if you look carefully within that process, you don't find a thingy called me. You don't find a solid soul or I or self. So a good example would be like a wave in the ocean. Let's say you're sitting at the beach and you look out and you see a wave and you're with your friend and you turn and you both say, do you see that wave? It's a big one. And your friend says, yes, I see that wave. It's a big one. And you look to each other and you say, that's a wave. It's a big one. Yes. Very clear, right? Everyone knows what you mean. But where is that wave? What is that wave? Any, really, any thoughts? What's the wave that you and your friend agree on? being big. Where's the true wave? Um, it's, like, it's like an accumulation of a lot of things for a moment. Yeah, great. It's, yeah. A, it's an accumulation of a lot of things for a moment. What things go into the wave? Salt and <laughs> sea. And Salt and sea. <laughs> wind. <laughs> wind. <laughs> Movement. Yeah. What else is in the wave? Language. Language, because you and your friend have... So there's something about the perception that is saying, ah, it's a wave. Good. Yeah. What else? Energy. Energy, yeah. Planetary movement. Planetary movement. All right. We're getting cosmic. <laughs> yeah. Froth. Froth. Yeah. A lot of power. A lot of power. Yeah. Vector operator. I'm sorry? Vector operator. Vector operator. Operator. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. I was I was about to say that, but you took the words right out of my mouth. So there is a wave. Nobody's denying that there's a wave. But what wave what the wave is is a it's a process. There's some kind of changing dynamic movement. And um, no substantial wave. So we can apply this to our sense of self, that, that there is a changing dynamic process that includes our material form, our perceptions, our emotions, our, and our feelings, and so forth. And within that, there isn't like, you can't find the wave. There's no like true essence of the wave somewhere according to this way of thinking. There are philosophies that would say, absolutely, there is a true essence of the wave. There is the ideal wave. There is the platonic form of a wave. There is uh, the own being or svabhava of a wave in Indian philosophy. That everything, according to some ways of thinking, everything has an essence, and that's true of the self. That there's an essential self. That maybe you can't find it with a microscope, but it's there. So the Buddha was really, you know, quite a rascal to, to really say, well, what if there isn't? I don't, I don't find one when I look. Why don't you look? 
Do you find it? So, one helpful way to distinguish this is you could say that there is a substance self, a substantial, essentialized self, or there is a process self, a changing dynamic process that within that process, it would be as if the wave suddenly said, I'm a wave right before it crashes against the beach and is gone. So that's kind of what our life is like. We're like, I'm me. And then we're gone. But there isn't a me other than the act of saying I'm me. That's one of the ways the Buddha talked about it is that the self is the act of us saying we are ourselves. That's what it is, is, is some sense of I am me. I am I. And this is why the title of the talk is You Are Not You. Because you're not you. You are the act of saying you are you. And if you didn't call yourself you, you wouldn't be you. Why does any of this matter? Who cares? Is it just kind of philosophical argument? Well, the Buddha really spent most of his time trying to describe why it did matter. That the source of our suffering, according to the Buddha, is the attachment and grasping at a changing process and trying to solidify it and say, I'm really me. And that the moment there's a sense of I am really me, then there's also a set of expectations, assumptions, grasping, clinging, habituation, fear, preferences, and a relationship with the world based upon an I point, a a kind of solid stake in the ground that says I'm me, and then there's a world out there. And that the moment there's I'm me and there's a world out there, suddenly we are not part of a flowing, moving process. We're, we've, we've staked out our territory of I. And suddenly it's our job to defend that I, to protect it, to make sure it's okay, to live in fear, to grasp at things that make that I happy. And the Buddha said, you know, he basically gathered people around him and he said, he said, look, that's what he said. He said, look, it's like politicians, you know, politicians always say, look, have you noticed this? They say, if they're in being interviewed, look. To the Buddha said, he wasn't much of a politician, but he said, look, said, I know it really seems like you're you. I I get it. I remember that experience. I remember what it was like to feel like I'm really me. And I know that seems unquestionable, undeniable. And I know that you're living your life firmly from that perspective, that you really are you, and that you've got to make things work out in, in your job and in your career. And I know that it feels like you have to really hold tight and make sure your relationships work and you're really worried about your finances and your health and your wardrobe and your dog and what you're going to do tomorrow and when you're going to get a vacation and for how long. And I know it seems that that's really what's happening. But I want to assure you 
that that is a complete and utter delusion. And that I, this is what the Buddha said, and that I have had the experience of a profound relief from that perspective. And it, to me, feels like I woke up from a nightmare. That that is not how the universe works. And that is not how a human life works. And that the more you habituate yourself to grasping at this I, the more you are committed to assuring it, walling it up, defending it, the more pain you will have. And so he set forth a body of meditative, philosophical, and ethical teachings that is really the practice, the ongoing practice of noticing and looking. Is this I real? Am I this I? Yes, we are sitting in a room together. There is sitting happening. (laughs) Yes, there's listening and speaking. Yes, there's warmth and coolness. Yes, there are thoughts, emotions. There's intelligence. There's awareness. Yes, all of that is happening. But within that, where are you? And I want to ask you to actually look for a moment. So you can close your eyes if you'd like. And just, just be playful and curious and brave. Yes, there's all, all these experiences are flashing in and out. They're happening. There's a body. Body is changing. Where are you? The you that you think you are. The you that is, you know, you. Where are you? Where is that you? Just look. Look in the present. Look in the moment. You don't have to look into the past or future, but right now, where is you? Where is the I? Now, who's looking? Who's looking for you? Who's looking for I? What happens just emotionally? What happens when we're when we look for yourself? <clears throat> what does that feel like? You know, is it frustrating? Is it relaxing? Does it reorient your attention in some way that's different from how we normally go about our day? Is there something in the very process of the looking itself that might be interesting, liberative, transformative in some way? And so much of Buddhist practice, even though now we think a lot about the mindfulness, the peacefulness element of meditation, the reason why Buddhists would meditate classically was to cultivate enough steadiness of mind or shamatha capacity to abide peacefully in the present 
So enough mindfulness to do these kinds of exercises in a very extended way, like for weeks and months and years, where your main practice would be a self-reflexive noticing of, you know, what is this I? What is this self? And through really looking and investigating moment after moment over time, there can be a direct experiential insight of this selflessness. Not just the idea, some of you, many of us have, like, oh, I have a vague sense of, yeah, selflessness, that makes sense to me. It's just a process, it's like a wave. But, but that's like saying, you know, oh yeah, water, I can see kind of what that's like. It's very different to actually drink it. So the Buddha was not particularly interested in dogmas or in saying there is a self or there isn't a self. What he really was pushing his students to do was to look genuinely, fearlessly, with intelligence and with a steadiness, to really wonder, what is going on here? Who am I? That's what he was really after. And ultimately, there's been a lot of textual analysis to see, is there a place where the Buddha definitively said, I believe that there is no soul or no self? And it's actually not clear. He was much more like Socratic and and dialogical in saying, well, if there is a true self, where is it? Show it to me. So there's a lot of investigation and looking and questioning. And this leads me to to the next part of what I want to present tonight, which is less the kind of metaphysics of subjectivity and self or no self, and more why this matters on the spiritual path or in our human journey. So... If we are oriented on a spiritual journey or a path of meditation from the perspective of self, then it can take a number of perspectives or a number of different forms. One would be, I think, which is more common nowadays, is a sense of, I am on this spiritual journey I am meditating or I am seeking out Buddhism or Shambhala teachings or whatever it is so that something improves in my life and my experience. I feel healthier. I feel less afraid, less anxiety, less depression, more effective, more joyous, more um, emotional well-being, more capacity to achieve my goals. So that's one form that the spiritual path could take from the perspective of I. Another form that the spiritual path could take from the perspective of I is a sense of I am going to attain enlightenment. I am going to reach ecstatic, mystical states. I am going to experience something transcendent about consciousness or about reality. And so... Both of these um, are approaches based on ego, on self. And some of us, most of us have a little bit of both. We kind of want to feel healthier, better, do well in our life. And if there's some cool thing called enlightenment, I'll take that too. I'll take it. Sounds good. And from um, the perspective of there not being a self, or the self being a kind of delusion What this means is that 
the very attempt to walk the journey of meditation or spirituality from the perspective of self will end up perpetuating suffering. It's almost like an alcoholic saying, I need to learn to drink alcohol in a way that will be more healthy for me. Or I need to learn to drink alcohol in a way that will lead to my freedom from drinking alcohol. (laughs) So eventually someone has to come along and say, well, the thing is, (laughs) you need to stop drinking the alcohol. That's the source of your alcoholism, or not the source perhaps, but that's a part of your entrapment. So similarly, all of us approach the journey of meditation and spirituality most of us, you know, from an orientation of how is this going to help me? How is this going to make my life better and things work out for me? Or how can I attain enlightenment? And Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, the founder of the Shambhala lineage, um, would often say this was a little bit like saying, I would like to attend my own funeral. I'd like to be able to watch and see all the nice things people say about me and all the eulogies and watch everyone crying and, you know, be amazing to see your own funeral. And the truth of awakening from the delusion of self-clinging is the very sad fact that we don't get to be at our own funeral because we're dead. (laughs) Or we don't get to attain enlightenment because in the process of awakening, it is that clinging to the self that releases, that lets go. Or we don't get to take the neurotic, frightened self and figure out how to bolster it and support it so that it feels okay. What, is, what we're gently being invited to do is actually let go. To really unclench our fist, to relax our perceptions, our emotional experience, our whole orientation, to release this constant grasping, defending, uh, and struggle that we call me. So this is this razor's edge where the teaching of egolessness or selflessness can sound terrible, right? It can sound like the ultimate threat, which is why many people, if they really understand Buddhism, would not practice it. Buddhism is very popular in the modern world right now. It's considered very... um, like modern, scientific, effective, helpful, really good, has a good rap. But there is a hidden truth within Buddhism, actually not so hidden, that is asking us to give up everything. So you don't get to be you and awaken. Awakening is a kind of disillusion 
and letting go of the act of constant self-grasping. But the other side of this is what tremendous relief. How extraordinary the possibility that we don't need to moment after moment grasp, cling, attach, clutch, tense, solidify, hold, fear, fight, struggle, that there could be a dissolving of that. And that is the awakening process, that the personality structure, the fear-based ego, the constant identification, increasingly, slowly, gradually, steadily, one starts to realize, I don't need that. I can eat my cornflakes without I. I mean, it sounds crazy, but that's kind of what it comes down to. Can there be an eating of the cornflakes? <laughs> or does there always have to be an I, the homunculus or the inner clenching Joshua, that is saying, I am eating the cornflakes? And you might actually have a moment, the more meditation you do, the more you are curious, the more you look, you might have a moment of realizing the incredible relief of just cornflakes, just the eating of cornflakes, of just the walking of walking, not I am walking, of just the living of life, of the moving and perceiving, feeling, thinking, without some I that's clenching itself back there, trying to hold on to it, control it, navigate. There can be a tremendous relaxation from that personality and that clenching and grasping that's very real that's not like a big deal that's not some transcendent state but you start to realize this orientation that I've been living from really is deluded and painful and stuck and rehabituating, re-ingraining and that with a bit of relaxation and insight and curiosity, the whole thing starts to dissolve and open up. And that we don't have to approach our spiritual path from the perspective of what do I get from it? How do I secure myself? But rather something else starts to unfold or take over as if we're no longer in the driver's seat, but we're, we're actually a passenger. And we are not separate. We are not solid. But there is a sense of um, release. And it was in this release that the Buddha named true peace or nirvana. And the Buddha didn't say much about nirvana. He didn't describe it as like a place or a band <laughs> he didn't give a lot of descriptives of what it was like to reach nirvana or attain nirvana or have nirvana. He called it an extinguishing, a blowing out of the flame of suffering, and especially a blowing out of the flame of the self-clinging, as if we are a process of burning, of clench clenching, that is, is diluted, 
that can be relaxed and released. So there is something that could cause us um, real concern about this teaching. You know, well, how, how would I get by? How do I live my life? What, who's the one showing up at Shambhala training level one on Saturday? You know, if there's no self, why come to level one? Which is a good question. <laughs> because um, much of, of spiritual, um, the spiritual teachings and the spiritual marketplace is you know, really there, designed to say, to, to say, oh, it's, this is going to help you. Come, give me your money. Come to my level. Join my group. Be on my path. You know, we'll give you pins. We'll give you um, titles. You know, you will bolster yourself. And Trungpa Rinpoche called this um, looking for spiritual credentials. Like constantly you know, getting, oh, I, I did this. I, I do this kind of Buddhism. I do this meditation. I do this yoga. I do this martial art. I do this inner energy healing work. I do this manifesting my potential in reality course. And we're collecting all of the thingies of the spiritual marketplace. But it's from this perspective, there's no one doing the collecting. It's just adding more to this delude, deluded self a clutching and at some point we kind of mature um, from that process and are free from the fear that's driving that approach to spirituality therefore the teaching of selflessness the teaching you are not you can be a way to be free from the consumer approach to spiritual teachings and to meditation and can undercut the way the capitalist marketplace is currently devouring um, meditation teachings, spiritual practices, yoga. It's so easily commodified. And maybe there's no way around that, but you don't need to um, you don't need to be part of that because there's no you because you are not you because there's already freedom from you and this is the kind of final point here which is that when we say selflessness or egolessness, most of us think, oh, there's a self that I need to let go of. There's an ego here that I need to undercut. There's an ego, there's an evil arrogance about me that I need to destroy in order to attain enlightenment. Have you ever felt something like that? You know, there's this kind of guilt of, I am too selfish, and egolessness means I need to be free of that. I need to destroy that ego, that self. And if we're more honest, we see that it is exactly that act of trying to attack and destroy and undercut the ego that is the ego. 
It's the, the constant struggle to get rid of ego, to try to get out of this trap, to stop it, to suppress it, to, to, to deny it. That is ego. That is the process of self. That is the self-clinging and struggle. So ego, really, experientially, is a fear-based struggle. It's a battle. It's a battle mentality. It's a sense of, I need to fight the world, I need to fight myself, I need to fight something. And then we turn to meditation or Buddhism and spirituality and we feel, now I'm really fighting. Now I've got the tools for the struggle and the battle. And not only that, um, everybody's fighting. And the Buddha says, struggle, fight against the self. And Jesus said, fight against the self. And Muhammad said, fight against the self. And everyone is saying, yeah, get rid of the ego, be less selfish, stop self-clinging. That is the greatest fuel for an ego. The ego is so happy with that struggle, that battle. You can keep going forever, fighting and struggling and fighting away the self, trying to get rid of your selfishness, your arrogance, your ego, your self-clinging, your attachments, your addictions, your desires. You can fight that forever, and the fighting itself is what you're fighting. The thing that thinks it's trying to get rid of itself is in the act of fighting itself, reasserting the pattern of self-clinging and of pain. And it has no end. There is no end to that vicious cycle. Which is why there's a, a real misunderstanding of this teaching of selflessness or egolessness. It can easily be reinterpreted as self-aggression or attack or trying to fight away something in us. And there is nothing that makes the ego happier than that endless battle. That It thrives off of that. It is that struggle. Ego, self, is that battle. 